Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello. Could I please speak with Roxanne Gay? Uh, this is... Hello, Roxanne. This is Paul, Paul Holdengraber, calling you from the quarantine tapes. Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you so much for being part of the quarantine tapes. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm all right. I mean, given the the extraordinary circumstances of which I want to ask you, how have you been for the last three months, and what have you been up to during this quarantine time? I've been pretty good for the last three months. Um, my wife and I are in California right now. We split our time between here and New York. We've been working from home, of course, and gardening. She has a garden. I've been doing a lot of cooking and baking yeah, and a lot of working and reading. And so it's just been, uh, you know, some downtime. Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment we're we're living through. I I was so taken by an article of yours in the New York Times called "How We Save Ourselves," where you you write, "If you had asked me before George Floyd's killing if I believed in police abolition, I would have said that reform is desperately needed, but that abolition was a bridge too far." And then that next sentence is tremendous. I lacked imagination. I could not envision a world where we did not need law enforcement as it is presently configured. I'm ashamed. Now I know we don't need reform. We need something far more radical. The current system does not work. Can you say something more about your your personal evolution on this issue? I find I find your wording extraordinary, particularly I lacked imagination. I think that for a lot of people the idea of police and prison abolition seems very impossible mm-hmm. because the amount of cultural change they require seems beyond us. I mean, right now we can't even get people to wear masks mm-hmm. so that they don't die. And so to suggest that there are ways of keeping people safe and holding people accountable without police brutality and without police as it's currently configured, you know, it does require a level of imagination that is significant. And I don't know that a lot of people are capable of imagining things in that way. Do you feel that this moment in a way um, might open up the possibility for imagining a world that might be different in that regard? I do think so. I think that we have seen so much police brutality, and especially in recent years, and especially with the advent of cell phone cameras. Mm. Uh, and so it's inescapable now. We cannot pretend that we don't know what's going on. And so I think armed with that, uh, we can start to 
imagine different ways of being. And I do believe right now a lot of people, and especially a lot of black people, have decided that this is enough. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. And that's certainly where I'm at because, you know, I write about race and gender and violence all the time. And I've written about police brutality in so many different ways over the years. And, you know, we keep saying the same things. We keep expressing the same amount of outrage. And that outrage is entirely justified. But we need more than outrage. Mm. And I think that means that we have to start to have serious conversations about what a different type of world might look like. The, the term that we're hearing all the time now is defund the police. And I, I think it's partly misunderstood what that might mean. But how, how do we get beyond what for some people just seems like a slogan? We have to make sure that people understand exactly what's at stake. Mm. And frankly, I, I don't know how we do that. Mm. Because if you're not already crystal clear on what's at stake, then we have a real problem. Hmm. So I, I think we have to just, you know, I just don't know how we do that, how we prove that this is something that needs to be addressed immediately. But we need to do it nonetheless. Yeah, nevertheless, to, to come back to the I lacked imagination, we, we have to find a way, don't we, to make people understand what defund the police means. Yesterday, I had a conversation with one of my guests who said, maybe we don't need to defund the police, but maybe we need to refund it, but refund it properly. Um, he he spent some time um, embedded in the NYPD, and he was saying, you know, it's it's just extraordinary because these young 22, 23, 24-year-old policemen are, are coming into homes where there's been, let's say, marital abuse, and they are supposed to, to somehow um, deal with that situation, but they have no training for that. We're asking the police to do things that maybe the police needn't do. Yes, you know, a lot of the calls that police respond to would better be addressed by social workers right. and therapists and drug counselors and harm reductionists. How do we start to fund those services? So uh, that's the question. Sort of a, a, a twist on that question or maybe an enlargement of that question. To what extent should we also be talking about defending the military? You know, that's a good question, and I don't know. We haven't begun to have that conversation because we're just so far from it. But I, I think that we should find more effective ways of funding the military, but I, I also understand the world that we live in, and I can't pretend that we don't need the police. I mean, uh, that we don't need a military. But I don't think we need a military that is as heavily armed mm -hmm. as the ones that we currently have. I think that when you arm a military for a world war, then other countries are also going to arm their militaries for a world war. And it becomes this sort of escalation on all sides if everyone tries to keep up with one another. 
Roxanne, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, I asked you what you were doing for the last three or four months. Are you, are mm-hmm. you, are you um, surprised by how quickly some of the themes and discussions have changed over the past these uh, over the past few months first with the pandemic and then with the other virus that happened on the 25th of of may which is just one of many many killings yes i i'm surprised at how sustained the conversation is this time around and that we are finally going from i would say racism 101 to racism 201 the conversations are not as advanced and sophisticated as they need to be but we are certainly getting beyond the types of conversations that we previously had and so i am encouraged by that and i am glad that we are actually having a legitimate conversation about what defunding the police might look like and developing people's budgets and voting out politicians who are not willing to respond to this moment in appropriate ways. Yeah, because I've been, I've been amazed. I've been amazed, and then I, I'm skeptical, and then I'm amazed, and then I'm skeptical. You know, looking at, maybe it's meaningless. I don't know if it's meaningless for you, but looking at the New York Times bestseller list and seeing the kinds mm-hmm. of books people are reading now, perhaps a shard of hope there that people are trying to inform themselves I do think there is a shard of hope because people are at least recognizing that there is reading for them to do, Mm-mm. that there are things they need to learn. On the one hand, we see that White Fragility, which is a book by a white woman, was for the past couple of weeks uh, the number one book. And that's a little discouraging. Yeah. You know, other than that, it, it gets a little bit better. Uh, and people are educating themselves. They're reading books from black authors. Uh, and I just hope that people sustain this energy and recognize that this is not something that you do just today. Right. And this is not something that you do just this week. You should always be reading diversely, not only in terms of demographics, but in terms of aesthetic and ideology. And uh, I hope that we can see that happening. I, I love this, something you've written here, which I think is fantastic. You say, people tend to have a very singular narrative of who someone is. And so people of color, women of color, queer people are only expected to write about identity-based things and the struggle of that identity. And when you write a narrative mm-hmm. that challenges people's expectations of who you are and your subject's position, then all of a sudden they get confused and think this isn't realistic because they don't understand and then uh, an echo i think of of whitman that we contain multitudes what is really extraordinary now is is this notion that we're not one um and we and we needn't we really needn't as you said before we really needn't think that reading these books for a week or two weeks is good enough. We have to, right. we have to have, a, as you put it, a sustained effort. And that effort should become a joy, a joy at seeing that, yeah. the, the, a joy at seeing that the world is made precisely of multitudes. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have to continue to sort of encourage people to understand that, not just in this moment, but well beyond, because so often we just don't have 
nuanced understanding of anything and it's to our detriment. So uh, I hope that we bring more breadth and depth to, to these conversations. And again, like we go beyond sort of racism 101 and 201 and start talking about real issues. Let's have a legitimate conversation about reparations and what that might look like and how it might be implemented. Uh, let's have a legitimate conversation about how school districts are funded mm. and inequities in our educational system. Let's talk about the disproportionate issues when it comes to healthcare. Uh, you know, we have to have material conversations that cannot just all be an intellectual exercise. You, you were mentioning a bit earlier, Roxanne, that this time has afforded you time to, to garden and to cook. And you also said to read. Uh, what what have you been reading at this moment, both to engage perhaps with with this moment, and perhaps also something that might offer you solace, if indeed that's what you seek when you read. Um, I can't say that I've been reading much to engage in this moment because I'm actually the the fiction chair for the National Book Award this oh, year, yeah, oh, which yeah. means that I have to read. I know. Yeah, I have to read 410 novels. I only, I, so, have, I had um, 490 when I did the nonfiction award. It's it's yeah. extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary it, moment. Yeah, the, the number of submissions is staggering, and so I am dealing with that. And so I've been, I'm reading a lot of fiction, but I have to say, I'm very encouraged. I'm reading a lot of really good fiction. Really? Uh, right now I'm reading, yeah, I'm reading a book called, um, so I'm reading a novel called The Familiar Dark by Amy Engel, and it is very, very good. Long story short, I'm reading a lot of really good novels, and that's very encouraging because, um, you know, you want to see a vibrant literary culture. And uh, we, we, we do have one right now, despite everything going on. One thing I'm, I've meant to ask you for, for a while, actually, when we met, but I didn't have a chance to ask you that evening. Um, did growing up with Haitian parents inform your perspective? I'm particularly interested because you, you may or may not know, Roxanne, my, my parents left Vienna and spent the war years in Haiti. Um, so I've always, mm -hmm. I've always had this feeling uh, for Haiti from all the stories. And then I went with my father and mother and sister to Kenskov, where my, my father lived from 1938 to 1944, being a farmer there. And I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just curious um, what effect um, Haiti has had on your, your intellectual and emotional landscape. Being Haitian is a significant part of my identity. My parents raised me to be proud of my Haitian heritage. Uh, and I think one of the key things was that I was raised understanding that my ancestors were free. And mm. the ways in which that opens you up to possibility, it cannot be understated. And so I always knew my ancestors were free and I was always able to carry that. Um, while also, of course, reckoning with the fact that I'm from a country that is still suffering because of colonization and still being punished because of that freedom. So it's just always given me that level of understanding about power and how it works. And then, of course, you know, you understand what 
relative poverty and absolute poverty are yeah. and that there's a difference mm. because in Haiti, uh, it, it's not what the media, you know, is always presenting as the poorest nation in the Western hemisphere. They love that phrase. Um, the problem is more complicated than that. And, you know, when I see conversations about poverty in the United States, you know, the poverty is very real and the suffering of the poor and working class are very real, but, well, there's no but actually. It's just, I have a, a different understanding of it when I contrast it with the level of suffering in Haiti. Now, it does no one any good to compare and sort of try and rank the suffering because it's not the same, but I, I, I'm intimately aware of my privilege because of growing up Haitian American. Yeah. I, I must say, go, going going to I spent a week in Haiti a few years ago, and it's um, it, it's so hard. I mean, so tremendously hard. And and visiting it and and learning about the history and you know learning about the revolution, it's so fascinating. And obviously, the the perception from the U.S. is so skewed and so strange. Now, um, as someone who who is part of the New York Times, and I must say I'm, I'm so pleased that you and Kianga Yamata-Taylor and others are part of the, of the Times now. I think speaking about multitudes, it's, so, it's, it's made the paper so much better. Um, what was your perception of the, the Tom Cotton controversy? You know, as a writer, I certainly believe in free speech, mm. uh, but I also think that we're allowed to have standards. You know, Tom Cotton is will, allowed to believe whatever he wants and he's allowed to say whatever he wants. But that does not mean he deserves the platform of the New York Times. He is a U.S. senator. He does not need the Times. And though it's important to understand opposing points of view, this idea that we should allow American troops to quell legal protest, that's not a point of view that deserves airtime. And so I thought that the Times reckoning with allowing it to be published in the first place, the fact that James Bennett did not read it before it was published, you know, so. I think these are things that are important to talk about. Yeah, it's, it's it was just staggering and, and, and hard, hard in a sense to, to really think that uh, James Bennett didn't read it. Um, it, 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 yeah. it seems so unlikely, but... It's a story told, and uh, and now I, I guess it has been somewhat of a reckoning at, at the times uh, for such things perhaps not to happen too soon again, one hopes. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. as, as someone who, who is active on, on social media, with all the pitfalls of social media, do you feel that a platform like Twitter can be a productive forum of conversation. I know that you've you've spoken very eloquently about the notion of not wanting to be an opinion vending machine, which is a, a term I think Roxanne, I'm going to adopt from you. Um, I think it's a, a, mm -hmm. a perfect way of phrasing it. And I'm, you know, you're you're so often, and even maybe in a conversation such as this one. So I'm, but I'm hoping maybe a bit less, perhaps, to to have a take on everything. And uh, that can be sometimes damning because it doesn't give you time to think. I'm wondering what you think about this. Uh, you know, I think that when you're early in your career as a writer and especially as a cultural critic, you're expected to respond 
almost instantaneously to everything that happens. And, you know, when you're hustling, when you're at that hustle phase, yeah. you do it. Uh, and if you are lucky enough to become more successful, then you are able to be more discerning and you're able to make better choices about when to speak and when to listen. And so the deeper I get into my career, the more careful I am about what I opine publicly about. And I, I think that that level of judgment is so critical. Uh, how can you take me seriously if I respond to absolutely everything? Right. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I'm just grateful that I am in a place in my career where I get to be more judicious about what I respond to, how I respond to it, and that I'm also in a place where I can have boundaries and say, I am not an opinion vending machine. Just because you want to hear from me on a topic does not mean that I have to um, say anything on this topic. I remember when I was working at the New York Public Library some years ago, Tanahasi Coates came to the library and someone asked him a question and he said, you know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to represent um, I, I, I want to be very careful. I'm not the, the representative of the black community. I don't know. Come back in a few years and perhaps I'll have a better answer. But for the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm reserving judgment. You know, and, and, I, mm -hmm. and I found that very good. I mean, I found that, um, you know, because this notion of a public intellectual that has to opine, as you put it, on everything is dangerous. And you've, you've said that you, yeah. you don't like phrases like identity politics. And I think particularly in this moment, those terms are very dangerous. Why, why don't you? Or do you continue not to? Yes, I think the phrase is disingenuous. People say identity politics because we make them uncomfortable by talking about the material realities of marginalized lives. That's not politics, that's fact. And uh, identity politics is never said with kindness. It's mm -hmm. never a compliment. And so I, I think it's very important to push back when people just use that phrase to dismiss your point of view. I was very taken, Roxanne, just this moment by your use of the word kindness. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting. Um, it's never, mm -hmm. it's never said with kindness, which is, you know, it's one of the things that has come about in in these conversations, is a belief, sometimes mitigated by by skepticism, that this moment may there, there may be something that will happen after this moment where people will perhaps become kinder. I wonder if you if you feel that's possible. And I'm always reminded that the word kind comes from being of kin. A different way of putting it, Arundhati Roy wrote about the pandemic as being a portal, which is, I think the term is perfect, a kind of an opening. Do you, do you, do you feel that it, it, it could be, it might be? And if so, what kind of a portal would it be? What kind of portal would what be? What kind of a what kind of a portal would this moment in in what way will this moment open up uh, a world that might because we can't go back to normal. I mean the the notion of going back to normal is precisely what we need to avoid. Normal got us. I mean whatever passed for normal got us into trouble, into severe trouble. So the mm -hmm. the pandemic and maybe all this social unrest might might teach um, teach us that there are different ways of living. 
kinder ways of living, another way of living, a different way of living? I don't know. I, I would love to believe that <sighs> people will sustain the energy that is currently happening right now, that people are expressing, and the, the care about social justice that people are expressing. But we have very short cultural memories, and people get fatigued very quickly when it comes to having to care about anyone but themselves. So I hope that this is the beginning of a very needed cultural shift, but I, I, I'm skeptical. Would, would you say that you're, you're skeptical with a, a, a glimmer of hope? I, I don't really deal in hope. I think that hope is a way that people like express that they want something to change without having to any do any work to make that change happen. Um, I'm just mm. skeptical, and then not skeptical. Well, Roxanne, it's it's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, I really want to thank you for taking this time. Stay safe. Ah, oh, you're welcome. And I I hope our paths cross again. And thank you, thank you so very much. It's been really good to talk to you. Take care. Have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.